This episode, my good friend Brock Knutson and I are going to be discussing six films based on graphic novels. All of them have a very dark theme, even edging towards horror, but it's a different flavor of episode. And my boy Brock knows his shit when we talk about comic books, so I've got this feeling like we're not going to 100% agree on the list. But I have this feeling like it's going to be a really good episode and really a lot of information. So, as usual, please send me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I'm your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And as usual, as I tell you every episode, there will be spoilers and there will be course language. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Rank and Review. Find the show on Facebook, find the show on iTunes, tell that favorite film friend in your life about it, and by all means, enjoy this episode of Rank and Review. So we are now starting the 70th episode of Rank and Review, <laughs> and uh, I'm talking via Skype to my dear, dear friend, Brock Knutson. I'm not, I'm not mispronouncing your last name. No, you said it exactly correct. It's pronounced like Knife. Yeah. I uh, I have this bad habit of inviting dear friends on my show and then mispronouncing their name. Because <laughs> I'm a professional <laughs> and a good Dear friend. friends yes. with the big quote hands. Yeah. Um, we're going to do scary comics, as I'm calling it. Uh, they're all adaptations of comic books. You couldn't quite call them horror movies, but I would say they're all quite dark. Yeah, very gritty, if nothing else. And uh, I've got Brock here to talk about them because Brock knows his shit when it comes to comic books. <laughs> I am a card-carrying nerd. I freely admit it. So uh, what what was it that drew you to this list? I mean, I gave you some options. This was the one that jumped out. I know I'm not the biggest horror movie fan in the world. We've we've had this discussion a few times. I guess I'll do go through it quickly. Do it once for the record. I, once for the record. I, Despite the fact that I really know a lot of horror movies and watch a lot of horror movies, I don't necessarily like horror movies. Um, and the most, the biggest reason for that is I hate jump scares. Like, I find them just so cheap, and I find they just, it's so hard to see a movie that doesn't use them. So I have a very small list of, like, very favorite horror movies that I, I treasure and love. Uh one of the things that always disappoints me in horror movies is, 
you know, there's this buildup where you haven't seen the thing or the whatever, or you don't have an idea what's really going on. Uh, and then, you know, like the, Ta-da! and it's, it's so often it's, it doesn't live up or it never lives up to what's going on in my head. Like what I've imagined, how bad I've put it in my head because I have a vivid imagination, which has always been one of my things. What brought you to scary comics? Do you think like, oh, sorry. was there a um, title in there that particularly jumped to you? Was it there are a bunch of these? I like, I, I really like a bunch of the movies in this and I love talking about them and there, there's some real depth in them. There's, I, I think, I don't know. These are just some of my favorite movies and, uh, which made it really hard when we were talking about that. I started doing my, well, what's one's going to be one through six? Because there's a bunch of these that I really like. Like there's a bunch of these that are really close. So it's going to be fun. I don't think we'll necessarily agree, but I think it's going to be yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I dropped that caveat with you before we even started recording. Just from what I know about you and from our previous discussion, I don't think we're going to go six for six. Mm-hmm. I'd be surprised if we went zero for six, but I don't think we're going to go six for six. But we are going to still part friends. And there's nobody <laughs> There's nobody that I would be rather discussing, you know, comic book movies with. Um, well, generally we have speaking, had our share of discussions over the years. It's true, one or two. Generally speaking, though, this is more your milieu. Sort of action superhero uh, is more something that you can g- get on board with. Oh, yeah. No, I, I would say I... And the other, th- the other part of it, I think, I guess, that really kind of caught, up, caught it, too, is I've read a lot of the comics that these movies are based on. So I felt really comfortable that I'd be able to talk about them and not just, you know, not just be spinning stuff, you know, out, out my, out my butt. So. Out your butt and out your mouth. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to talk to just say the six movies that we're going to talk about this episode and then we can sure. duck into it properly. Unless there's anything else you'd like to say by way of introduction. Mm. All right. Uh, we're going to start off Let's with, show. with the Watchmen, um, from Zack Snyder. Um, a, a director who I have the controversial opinion of that his best film remains his remake of Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> but we can discuss that in just a few moments. We're going to discuss The Crow Salvation. This is the second sequel to the very successful 90s enterprise The Crow. We're going to discuss a David Cronenberg film to cleanse the palate after that with The History of Violence starring Viggo Mortensen and my girlfriend Maria Bello. <laughs> um, we're going to look at Kick-Ass from the director of Stardust, which is a favorite movie of my wife and I's. And we're going to look at Sin City from Robert Rodriguez. And we're going to wrap it up with a... Uh, uh, don't forget for that is... Don't forget that Sin City is also co-directed by Frank Miller. And uh, apparently one scene by Quentin Tarantino. Yes. Really? Um, I can't imagine which scene that was. <laughs> one of the violent ones. Now we're going to finish with V for Vendetta, which you were saying when we talked before is like one of your very favorite comic book movies. Yeah. So I'll get into it when we get into it. So Right on. Well, let's get into it. Uh, one, okay. two, three, go.
Zack Snyder has just released the Batman vs. Superman movie, which is sharply mm. divided nerddom. I haven't seen it yet, um, but uh, I mean, I'm not super amped to it. I'm not. I'm sure I'll get around to seeing it, but it's not something that I need to get to right now. Um, I, I will say this about I... Zack Snyder. He makes movies that look fantastic, and what you cannot you know, deny about this Watchmen adaptation is that it looks amazing. <laughs> it is a very generous three-hour comic book epic, and the, he is really trying to give you the book visually to as best degree as possible. Yeah, I, I, I thought some of his real successes in it were there's some uh, long pans and stills that are just like, they're just iconic in the comic and he just nails the feel and look of them and it, it really does feel like you're watching a comic book come to life yeah. in that sense. The only movie that gets closer to it in this whole set will be Sin City and we'll talk about that when we oh. get there. But as far as bringing yeah. pages of the book to life, it is very, very impressive. And as far mm -hmm. as his faithful retelling of the story of this alternate universe where superheroes sort of had existed but have been sort of retired because they were considered vigilantes. And uh, we find that uh, someone is killing off these former superheroes and vigilante Rorschach is trying to figure out who's doing it and why. It gets mm -hmm. a lot more complicated by that than that, but I don't want to spend the whole <laughs> review explaining the plot. What's interesting to me, because I am familiar with this book, this is a graphic novel that was taught at university, <laughs> you know. Yep. Uh, it, it is a cherished piece, and for good reason is, for all the faithfulness that he has in the comic book, it's very, very telling the few changes that he made. Tells mm -hmm. me that in some ways he fundamentally missed some of what the material was going for. But I'm I, totally I willing to hear a second opinion. I read a really interesting uh, internet uh, blog post that someone wrote, and it was that uh, uh, Zack Snyder hates Superman. <laughs> and But the reasons that they gave were kind of interesting. But it, you have this god hero uh, of Dr. Manhattan who is beyond human comprehension. You know, he's moved outside of that. And then you have kind of these different faces of Batman in the other, er, the other men, at very least, in The Watchmen. Right, like you have the gadgeteer, you have the, the the genius, you have the batshit vigilante who's given into the dark, right? Who's right. who's become the killer, right? Like that's because they they show that Rorschach at one point was very much this principled detective, right? Like he was the, and then he loses it on over the the guy that murders the little girl, right? Yeah. And he and he butchers him, kills him like a like a hog or a dog or a it's whatever. no longer just about you know evil being punished it's about him becoming you know this instrument of violence and, and punishing him as brutally as as the criminal himself had executed their crimes yeah you know and the um it's interesting too there's the, the prison scene where he's he has that famous like i you think you think i'm here and here with you and you're in here with me like there's some rorschach is one of the only is, is a really compelling character. I love that he has the the Batman voice the whole show, right? Like he talks like the Bale Batman, like from he does. minute one to, to the it, end. It doesn't make me snicker in the same way that the Bale Batman sometimes makes me snicker, though. I actually think Jackie Earl Haley really does a good job of Rorschach. Bale Batman, because he's being all tough, but he's still maintaining the principles, right? Like a thou shalt not kill side is a whole different you know ball of whack. 
it's really the, the whole idea that, um, though, I mean, one of the things too, like they have this whole Superman is a spook, right? Or, uh, you know, Dr. Manhattan actually works for America. In, in the comics, the only way they've ever been able to kind of keep Superman from being this like crux of uh, real, um, you know, intercontinental or inter-societal or inter-country war is by kind of saying, no, 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 Superman doesn't belong to America. Superman belongs to the world. He's a right? global he, citizen. He, right, yeah. Like, because any, and, and there's been several comics. I mean, like The Dark Knight Returns, uh, a few of the other ones uh, have they've explored this idea about what a Superman who's only for one country would be like. And, and it is very much like, you know, how you see in, uh, in The Watchmen where Dr. Manhattan's striding through Vietnam, ending the war in a week, you know, nuking the Viet Cong with his eyes, right? Yeah. Like, it's, uh, it's terrifying, yeah. right? And, and it's, uh, I, there's a line I love, um, and it's, it's, it's right at the end. It's after, um, uh, after uh, Adrian had, thinks he's, or uses the D-matter disassembler thing on Dr. Manhattan to try and, you know, keep him at bay. And he's like, he says something like, uh, oh, the, the, the world's smartest man is of no more consequence to me than the world's smartest termite. Right. And that's, that's what, that's one of the whole point, like the whole idea of having a Superman or having a giant superhero it's it, it immediately just just discounts or just you know shuts down all value as, it, as soon as he's on one side there's no argument right yeah. there's no fight right so that and then you know and that becomes the whole you know the, the reason you know destabilizing him to send him off I, I agree that I think in making him the main like making him the, the more about the story more about him or the fiction more about him that is being perpetrated to unite the world it it really it takes away from from the character i i think it makes him uh, i like the story in the comic um and i don't think it benefits from being changed and seemed implausible it seems like a strange story in the comic but i don't think this is a good replacement well, um, what I was talking about when I say what the changes that he made confusing oh. to me or, or being telling as to his, maybe in my opinion, missing some of the points of it, is that as you mm -hmm. say, Dr. Manhattan is so powerful as to be terrifying. He has more power mm -hmm. than any, you know, person that was once a human being should ever have. And uh, he has all the flaws of a human being, but all the powers of what we would imagine an omnipotent God would. And that is, like you say, absolutely terrifying. And in the world of the graphic novel, he is the only superhero at that point that has legitimate powers. Everybody mm -hmm. else dresses up in costumes, has armor. Some of them have like little ticks to their personalities and are, are gifted in a specific area, but they're people. And that's the main difference with Dr. Manhattan. And in the movie, Mm -hmm. they have superpowers when we get to the action sequences and we're seeing them fighting yeah. these people in the alleys they're punching them through walls and shattering their bones and like it, it it misses the point of how powerful manhattan is to them and how big a threat these aren't superheroes these are people and that's what watchman was trying to do it was trying to humanize superheroes before we'd seen it in movies before we'd seen it in comic books it's funny you bring that up. I had that same or a very similar kind of thought to that. And I was like, um, you know, it wasn't even because I was, it was, you know, like for like Rorschach and, um, you know, the Owl Man and the comedian, 
well, to a lesser extent, the comedian. The comedian just seems strange. Like he seems like he's got like a Captain America thing going on, where he's got a super soldier thing right from the like. You you see an origin story. You see a how this happened to Doctor Manhattan, but you don't see this for anybody else. They talk about you know, oh, we just you know put on the costume and, and yada yada. But yeah, like the um, the, uh, the the girl, uh, uh, Jupe or whatever the you know both of them, they they show them and they're like yeah they they're they're super powered. But you're like well how did that happen? Like, where did and they get these superpowers from? We saw how Doctor Manhattan got his. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's I think that's just a stylistic choice of we need to you know he's like I need to be able to show these guys doing crazy exciting things and just punching people isn't going to cut it although it does cut it with Rorschach Rorschach doesn't do any of that stuff he's just brutal violence right? yeah well and the other change which is interesting is and we're going to go to spoilers here towards the end of the movie <clears throat> when uh, you know the mastermind's plan is coming out in the comic book. We see basically he makes it look like there's been a tear in the universe, and some Cthulhu mm-hmm. tentacle monsters come pouring out into our plane of existence. Whereas in the movie, it just becomes another nuclear threat. And I don't know why a I don't, he wouldn't want to go with the crazy Cthulhu monster being such a visual director. And the other thing is, I think the point of it being this otherworldly thing was that it had to unite humanity. All of this evil that he was doing, this master plan that he had. Like, he was sacrificing his morality in order to try and make the world a better place. People would die, and, you know, innocents would die, and he would have to deal with that. But long-term, he believed this was going to make the world a better place. And in order to do that, the enemy had to be something outside of humanity. It had to be something that would unite us. And another nuclear threat wouldn't do that. Another nuclear threat is just more of the same. Essentially, what uh, Zack Snyder hit Superman... What I'm saying, though, is that it's uh, uh, basically he turns the movie into um, the the existence of this god hero is, is does you know it suspends it stops human humanity from developing. Yeah. So he becomes Superman becomes the villain. In yeah. This is this is Batman, you know, or Lex Luthor actually beating Superman. Right. Right. Like he he does. He, he accomplishes his goal. He, de-stab- he he finds his human flaws and he exploits them to the point where he leaves long enough for him to make him never able to come back. Well, uh, I see the parallels between, you know, the Superman Batman thing and the Watchmen thing. I haven't seen the Batman Superman fight. I, have, so I, I haven't either. And I did. I could care less. I don't. Well, uh, I've said some good things. Like I said, I, uh, I think that visually he did it well. I don't think the cast overall sucks. For the most part, the decisions made were good. Like I say, those changes are telling to me in that he is much more visual than he is story, which is something that I've always suspected. And I think that if you watch his films, I think is a fairly easy position to defend. But it's unfortunate because the story here is really rich. Um, there are some genuine missteps, though. I think that we need to draw a moratorium on the use of Hallelujah in cinema. Oh, I hate that scene so and much. It's like these two people who are trying to connect with each other but can't, and then they get back into their old superhero outfits and remember how things was, and all of a sudden he's got lead in his pencil, and there's this ridiculous fucking love scene that I just... I can't imagine looking at any version of the edit of that and not thinking, this is parody, right? We're supposed to laugh at this? Like, wow. 
and uh, the you know <laughs> engines shooting out a spout of uh, a fire as they are climaxing in their lovemaking. It's like the entire movie stops for this terrible music video porn sequence, and not a fan. <laughs> and and sight gag. Yeah. And cheap and ugly. And in a movie that's smart, it's just like this really loud, clunky, dumb moment that once, and again, with the Hallelujah, once your song's been used in a Shrek movie, you gotta retire it. You just, <laughs> you gotta retire it. It's done. There's no impact anymore. You know? <laughs> yeah, the, there, there's way too many long shots with 60s music. Yeah. And it just goes on too. Like, it, it, it's there's some really strange directorial choices and i think they're really you know when you think about what what's what's amazing in the movie i i don't go it's amazing because the director made a good choice it's amazing because he took the material and brought it and 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 put it to screen it's often the points where i go oh that didn't work is that there was some he, he went off book or he took it in his own direction. And, and to me, that's where it fails the worst is, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a solid gold book. And, you know, some of the other things in these lists, which we'll get to, I actually think they transcend their source material. And this one doesn't, it only shines where it shows the source material and where it goes off on its own, it falls flat. Well, and in Zack Snyder's defense, this could not have been an easy thing to adapt. The The fan base around it is ridiculous. The author is notoriously difficult. <laughs> After League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, he basically said he was done with Hollywood. He's never had anything positive to say about anything that's been adapted, including The Watchmen, including V for Vendetta. Uh, Terry Gilliam... He's never seen... Sorry? He refuses to watch. He won't watch even watch any of them after. There you go. So after he leave. won't even give an opinion because he won't form one. So he's a sticky pickle or <laughs> whatever. Uh, over and above that, Terry Gilliam was going to take a whack at this. And he said that it's too big. It needs to either be a miniseries. It just doesn't fit into a movie. And Terry Gilliam is an ambitious filmmaker. <laughs> you know, if he walks away from it with his tail between his legs, it's, it's a tough nut to crack. So... He made an ambitious film, and for a three-hour epic, it holds together well. In a way, this was the one of the bunch that when I came to sit down to rewatch it again, it felt the most a little bit like homework to me. I've got the big three-hour version, uh, director's cut version, and I mm -hmm. have the uh, added uh, book with the the comic book within the comic book with the yeah the black what is the black mask black freighter the black freighter tales black from the freighter. black freighter. So I reinvested and I replugged in and. and what the movie does really well is remind me what a great book The Watchmen is and made me want to pick it up off the shelf again. And if it does that for viewers, then it is a successful adaptation. But I don't think and, for and me if it's anyone, going to be big on, uh, super high on this list. If anyone who's watched the movie or is listening to us who hasn't watched the animated uh, Tales of the Black Freighter that they kind of shipped alongside it, whatever, it's... It's kind of neat. It's worth a watch. It's a part of the real comic, so yeah. I, I I thought it uh, it was a really well done little animated thing. It just it's, it's it's fun. It's easy to watch. It uh, you can sort find of it. echoes Ozymandias' sort of uh, loss of morality journey. 
and that his goal is mm. pure in, in the pirate story. His goal is to get home and protect his family from pirates. And then Ozymandias' goal is world peace. But in mm -hmm. their journey, they turn into monsters. So, yeah. like, I, it's definitely something where tra fat needs to be trimmed that I totally understand would be something that would go. But uh, it's, uh, it's worth a look. And the cast, and, like and I said, sharks. throughout is good. The sh and the sharks in it always. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan, but I'm not foaming at the mouth. I think we're kind of on the same page, right? I want to be with you forever. Only forever? Come on! No, no. The Crow legacy continues when a young man is wrongfully accused of murder. Alexander Frederick Corvus, do you have any last words? I loved Lauren. I'm innocent. Now, with the guidance of the Crow, he sets out to find the killer. Where did you come from? I'll make sure everyone knows that you're innocent, that you loved her. What do you want? I want to know why! I can't be alive, not without you. Eric Mabius, Kirsten Dunst. So, I have been quoted in the past as saying that Scream is the most 90s movie ever. But I think in contention for that list of most 90s things is The Crow. The original Alex Proyas Crow is so 90s, it's, it's kind of crazy. And uh, for me, The Crow is something that maybe should only exist in the 90s. <laughs> uh, I have an affectionate memory, too, especially the original Crow. But today we're not talking about the original Crow. We're talking about the third, The Crow Salvation. This came out in 2000 <clears throat> and in many ways <clears throat> is trying to emulate the vibe, spirit, and in a lot of ways the story of The Crow with about a third of the budget and a third of the love being put behind it. So, not to tip my hand too early, not a huge fan of The Crow's Salvation. Although I do think there may be one or two interesting things we can say about it. Uh, where do you oh. land on this? Where do you land on The Crow as, a, as, a, as an item, as an entity in the world, and on The Crow's Salvation? This is the third chapter in The Crow Saga. <laughs> okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back a little bit. So, yeah, like, I mean, you got to think The Crow, the original J.O. Barr, um, amazing, amazing work. Um, is very much it's like a symphony of pain. Uh, this was like written by somebody who's deep in grief, and uh, it oozes from the pages. And it is in that is faithfully, I think, captured in the original movie. There's there is a lot of to what real happens. pain. And, yeah. yeah, like you don't, you don't, you don't not believe any of what's going on. You believe that that there is pain and loss and grief in all of that. Um, you know, and it, it is very much a thing of its time, you know, like definitely the people that, you know, uh, you know, Michael Smith fans and, and that, that whole thing, like there's, there's definitely, you know, this was definitely a, um, this is our comic for like, you know, kind of the goth scene at the time for what it was before it became a different thing that like, you know, the, the, the old, you know, we sat in the upper mub in dark coats crowd in, you know, when we were all in university kind of thing. <clears throat> but um, it it doesn't franchise well um, because it's not 
there, there's none of like you're, there's all these elements right of this oh well you know someone who's wronged and dies you know if the wrong is bad enough they don't really die they just keep going on like it's a, it's a compelling story but without the emotion behind it without the 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 loss and the grief and the real story in it it's it's just a you know it's a flawed mirror right yeah. like it's the same story done over and over again poorer and poorer right even if I did say I connected emotionally with the story of Eric Mobius, uh, Mobius who's a girlfriend who's murdered by crooked cops and who was sent <laughs> to the electric chair uh, for this crime he didn't commit, who comes back to life as this revenant figure to kill all of those people responsible. No, I didn't emotionally connect to it, but as we were saying, this is the third chapter in the Crow franchise, and you know what it adds to the story or the mythology? nothing yeah not um, one thing uh the even the evil cops doesn't really have a tr twist fred ward who looks somewhere between bored and vaguely embarrassed to be in the movie here uh as as he should be. yeah uh seems to just know in, in, inherently that oh yeah this crow thing sometimes happens so yeah this demonic hey. guy is going to be hunting you guys down uh and uh you read about it yeah, he actually talks about that. He's like, I read about this one time, and I was like, in in what? In like, Crooked Cop Weekly? Like, and, and you're so unfazed by it, so <laughs> to suggest to me that you believe in it. So in that case, why are you always brutally murdering people? Wouldn't you be worried about this shit happening? <laughs> like, uh, but again, we're we're thinking about it way way more deeply than anybody involved in the production did at this point. True, <laughs> I just you know. Um, so many that you know i'm gonna have my guys do this thing and then i'm gonna show up and personally plant the weapon with my scarred arm no, <laughs> no. no. what that doesn't uh, make any uh, sense at all you know it's a bad I, problem. I, i'm at the pinnacle of the police in this area you know i'm their you know underground office dwelling commander-in-chief if they get hung up on the street i'm the guy who can untie all the knots i'm the master manipulator yeah. puppet you know master here and uh i'm gonna get my hands dirty on a street level just because and, and i have a and i have a, a creepy secretary and i'm all in you know it's like it's like at some point someone was like oh wait the villain kind of knows about creepy things so let's make him creepy and i was like what but Again, they did that way better in the first Crow movie. In fact, in the original Crow movie, some of the best stuff in that movie are the bad guys. They're awful, oh, yeah. but they're so richly characterized, right? Like, they're just so well executed. Uh, there's a few bright spots here and there. Like I said, generally speaking, I like Fred Ward. Um, um, what's his name? Walton Goggins shows up as mm. one of the bad police officers and he's trying hard to give a performance. I'm sure in 2000, he was just happy to have an acting gig at all. <laughs> if you're getting paid to act, you're fucking winning. Right. Uh, so, you know, there are things in the movie, William Atherton, who you used to see in the eighties in like movies like Die Hard and Ghostbusters playing mm -hmm. bricks, uh, shows up in the movie. Um, so like there's faces here that we can recognize and I can see them trying to at least meet the level of the darkness of the original film. I thought it was kind of fucked up that they literally sewed Kristen Dutt's, Dunst's lips shut. <laughs> that was kind of fucked up. Um, 
but, but it was just momentary things here and there which would remind me of the first movie and when i'm watching this movie constantly being reminded of that other better movie i'm you know i'm not engaged it, it really felt like they kind of got to the end of it and they were like not enough crow and they're like oh okay let's reshoot the kirsten kirsten dunn scene and so her lips shut that's fruity crow and uh Let's have, you know, Fred Ward know that he's a bad, you know, like that whole plant the fake arm and undermine his confidence. Yeah. And just double dark on the, on the Fred Ward character, especially. He's not just going to kill, maybe as his best friend and lawyer, he's going to like personally shoot him in the heart and then hang his body up and, you know, hack it up like he's in a butcher shop or something like this. And, and use, use his arm. Ha 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 ha. (laughs) <laughs> so uh yeah not a lot of love here for the crow salvation um oh let's not forget the completely like there out of nowhere superfluous car chase with many explosions yes <laughs> um the crow itself that that always seems to whenever the you know uh, maybe it causes a big explosion the crow will fly into the camera. <laughs> that happens several occasions, you know, in the movie. Yeah, uh, and blood blood stains always look like crows, that kind of thing. Yeah, he leaves his little mark behind. He makes fire go in the shape of a crow. These are all very comic book things, and in a better handled comic book movie would be there. But this was a direct-to-video movie in 2000, which was already too late for another crow sequel. Oh, yeah. And the crow, too, had no, you know, Spoilers, mm-hmm. I guess. Already shat the bed as far as I was concerned. Um, I think that this might be a slightly better movie than City of Angels, but at this point, we're discussing Shades of Brown on shit, right? Yeah. There is a, I think there's a fourth one, honestly. There is, starring Edward Furlong. <laughs> but that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> it sucks. Like Everything that made The Crow cool originally just dies when you dilute it with sequels the fact that he in the first crow movie could take a thousand bullets and then get back up and laugh was kind of cool and badass in this movie it just kills the stakes right in this movie yeah yeah, he can't be killed we know he can't be killed so we don't have to worry about it being stabbed repeatedly or being shot repeatedly you know um the idea that they get to try and kill the crow by executing the bird instead of him was taken again right out of the first Mm -hmm. movie like um yeah. It, it's just a fake faint photocopy again. It's it's not so bad as to make me angry, but it, it's so bland. It's like a flavorless yeah. meal. Uh, <laughs> well, and and I mean, not that with the budget you'd expect it to be good story, but when all of the story pieces literally just hang together by these poor tattered threads, you just you just don't there's just no investment, right? Like you just I mean, Kristen Dunst uh, determines that even though they've murdered her sister and done all these things, that they won't do any of those things to her. Like, she's going to, you know, oh, no, I, I, you know, it's safe. I can talk to my dad about this. Talking to my dad about this is what got my sister killed. But, you know, I'll be okay. Yeah. Or, yeah, when Fred Ward... Based on what? (laughs) Fred Ward confronts her and basically is trying to tell her, your father committed suicide. I'm sorry that this happened to you. Blah, blah, blah. Basically, like, she could play ball at that point and walk out of the room. But instead, she says, 
I know you're a liar. I know you're a crooked cop, and I'm gonna fucking expose you. Basically, giving him no choice <laughs> but to kill her. Like she's not particularly resourceful or smart. She's the girl who, as soon as we're introduced to her, we realize, yeah, at some point she's gonna be kidnapped and needing to be rescued, and that's the role she plays. Yeah. I mean, maybe she's got a little bit of spark and energy to her, but. Uh, I wasn't really engaged in a movie. I wasn't engaged in particularly. I was even less engaged with the Kristen Dunst subplot. <laughs> it she she was so she was so uh, forgettable in the role that I almost at times forgot it was her. Right. Because I quite like Kristen Dunst. I think she's done some really crazy gigs over the years and done some really make really quite good performances. Like she's really brought some roles to life in ways that I wouldn't have expected, but. You can yeah, only do so much with this hand well, that you've been dealt here. Yeah. Like I said, it's the Crow 3, and there's nothing different about it. I feel like we've been really mean, but uh, other than beating a dead horse, is there anything friendly you can think to say about the movie? I don't think mm -hmm. it was incompetently executed. I think that everybody involved is still in the right line of work, necessarily. I'm sure most people was a hired gig. Uh but it's out of time. Even the soundtrack, even in 2000, this was a dated movie. When it came out, it was already old news. I, I guess, I guess if I, up until the car chase, I wasn't hating it. Right. That's, that's my nice thing. <laughs> you can watch it. I mean, it, 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 it is what it is. And this is sort of a retro feeling thing, you know. There was a time in the 90s where you go to a Halloween party and there'd be at least five crows there. And they were all douches. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not going to disagree with that statement. Uh, and apparently they want to try a, a remake or a reinvention of The Crow. But I don't know. For me, I think that The Crow is a very specific time and place. It was that graphic novel, that original set of stories uh, in mm -hmm. the early 90s. And it was the Alex Proyas movie. And that sort of strong tragic final performance of Brendan Lee there should not be any sequels to The Crow like these movies probably just shouldn't exist but if you just love The Crow so much that you want more here is what it, can be defined in quotation marks as more yeah and if you if you like the original Crow movie and you feel like you want more than that and you've never read the comic read the comic it's yeah. a gooder they were gonna kill us Saved our lives. Hello, my hero. Tom Stahl is a family man with long-standing ties to this community. Right now, this community is rallying behind him and calling him a hero. Way to go, Tommy. Oh, great, more reporters. You look like reporters. You're the big hero. Really don't like talking about it, sir. You sure took care of those two bears, man. Joey. My name is Tom. It's Joey. I have a weird relationship with Cronenberg because, like, I love to support Canadian talent and, like, I'm, I'm on board. I Typically what would happen with me is I'd see a trailer for the new Cronenberg movie and I'd say, this looks awesome, I should check it out. And I would check it out and I'd be kind of disappointed by it. Now, over the years, I've grown to really come to love Cronenberg, but as a rule, I have appreciated his more commercial fare than his more, you know, Cronenberg-y stuff. Which means I like things like the Goldblum Fly and the Christopher Walken Dead Zone more than I like things like Crash or M. Butterfly, right? Uh, 
this history yeah. of the violence one was a big, pretty huge mainstream success and it garnered a lot of award nominations deservedly so but it also manages to be very much a Cronenberg film and as it yeah. turns out it might be one of my favorites so uh, I am a huge surprise fan of A History of Violence a movie that I got around to seeing and that actually kind of really took my breath away how much I uh, how, how affected I was how emotionally involved I was to this story this is the one movie of the bunch that I don't know anything about the source material but I do know that it is based on a graphic novel and uh, yeah, me neither I had no idea going yeah. into this I haven't read this one this is the one I haven't read apparently the screenwriter uh, got the rights for the book and adapted it uh, mm -hmm. the script ended up on Cronenberg's desk he said he liked the themes found it interesting he basically added a little bit of this kink angle to it that you started talking about with some sex scenes and uh, sort of another angle to sort of show us uh, of the relationship anyway, but sort mm -hmm. of kept the brute violence and sort of morality identity tale. I'll get I'll let you get your, your thoughts out here, but I'm just going to do a quick service mm -hmm. to the plot. Uh, Viggo Mortensen plays a small town diner owner. He's married to Maria Bello and he's got... Mm. Uh, you know, he's got a couple of kids and uh, normal life. Stephen McCaddy and uh, his sidekick come into the cafe, lock the door and make it clear that they mean to do some terrible business in that store. Everybody's life is in danger. And Tom Viggo Mortensen steps to the plate. He has wounded himself, but he manages to stop these two villains by brutally killing them. <laughs> Spectacularly. Yeah. This brings him media attention, and the media attention brings him the attention of this old crew from his past, or are they? It's sort of a, is it true, is it not? Who is Tom at the end of the day? Is he who these guys think he is? Is he the small town guy? Can he change between? Um, but this altercation, this violent altercation, unspools his life, changes the relationship with his family, changes his own identity. And uh, it's a lean, like, 100-minute psychological shoot up for what it accomplishes. And it really, really has teeth. So that's where yeah. I land <laughs> on A History of Violence. But, Brock, please tell me again what you think of it. <laughs> I, I really like this movie. And uh, I hadn't gotten to watching it until just getting ready for this. And I'd always meant to. My wife and I had always meant to watch this. Because we like Viggo Mortensen, I think he always. I I can't think of a single time I've ever seen him phone in a role. He's always in it, a hundred percent. And uh, you know, again, I like Cronenberg. I, there's yeah, definitely there's there are some bizarre titles in his uh, in his bag, but there are some some pretty good stuff. And his I, some of his older stuff is is really phenomenal. And I mean, there's some. You know, like I, I, I've saying this before, I, I think, you know, if you took out uh, a couple of the or, or even just kind of changed up kind of how, how they were done in a couple of the scenes, you could easily this could easily pass as a Coen Brothers movie. Right. Like it's got that fiasco feel of just shit going wrong. And uh, it's really, you know, in people's faces. There's a lot of there's complex relationships. The relationship between him and his son is. Uh, you know, and maybe this is, you know, being a dad and stuff, but I, there's, uh, I was, there wasn't a single facet or single interpersonal relationship in the show that didn't fascinate me. And I was 
really deeply impressed by how good a movie it was. Everybody is amazing in it. And you're right. There's something about the specificity of the shots and how the violence is handled that is almost Cohen-esque. But I do mm-hmm. really feel Cronenberg at work here because uh, underneath this like fairly basic, you know, ghost of the past storyline and uh, tale of identity, uh, we have real psychological depth. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we have two sex scenes, very deliberately two sex scenes between Viggo Mortensen and Maria Bello. One as sort of a, a cute couple trying to keep things interesting when she comes in with a little cheerleader uh, outfit and mm-hmm. we see a genuine warmth and connection between the two of them that is real. Even though, mm-hmm. we, as we find out, it may or may not be based on lies, their connection is real. Uh, so when she ends up having this really awful, rough sexual encounter with this man that she barely knows, who is her husband on a stairwell that leaves them both sort of bruised and stunned, it doesn't just feel like an icky Cronenberg sex scene. It is that, but it doesn't just feel like that. It feels to mm-hmm. me like it's there for a reason. And I feel like I know both of them a little bit more after we walk away from that moment. Well, he really talks uh, when, when he's confronted, when he's finally admitting that he is this other person as well. Uh, he talks about, um, you know, he killed him or he thought he killed him. He, he really, you know, she asks him if this is like multiple personality. And he's like, he's like, no, the, well, it is, but I, I, I killed that guy and now I'm this guy. And um, you can't, that, you know, and I think that's thematically one of the, the, the major points of the whole movie is right? you can't bury that. It's always a part of you. And he doesn't, he isn't able to come back and rejoin or reintegrate into the new family until he's, um, until he's taken that in and not killed it, but but become it and made it a part of him. And I think part of what they're saying too is like it's there. The two sex scenes are there's a sex scene with him, with the new guy, and there's a sex scene with the old guy. And the wife, I think the wife always knew he was there. You know, she's a lawyer. She's you know like there's that kind of there's that hidden bad guy kind of thing to it. And uh, I, you know, I, I really do feel like that that's, it's, it's the two personas, right? And the son, the son does the same thing. He's got the, he says, you know, oh, well, who am I talking to? Am I talking to dad or am I talking to the guy? Like, am I going to get whacked if I have to talk to you about this? Right? Like there's until he, until he goes on his, uh, crusade to go, you know, end it and put that history to bed for good. He's, he's both those men and neither. And when he comes back, he's both those men together, and he's his real person. He doesn't walk into that house like Tom. He walks in as this man reborn, having come through this. And one by one, as he sits down at the table, his family takes him back. And that that scene is so powerful. That end scene just blew my mind. I was so impressed by the... And it's almost completely nonverbal. Yeah. Uh, they're strangers, but they're still a family in a lot of ways. I think also and, I want to mention Ashton Holmes, who plays the eldest son, I believe. Oh, uh, who such a good job! He he starts off the movie as one person and finishes as another as well, but you're not sure if this new influence from you know his dad is good or bad. 
was it better when he, you know, tried to defend the bully with words or just took the beating and deflated the situation? Or was it better when he beat the bully so bad that he became, you know, the bully himself, that he became the terror of the high school, you know? I, I don't I don't even see it as that. I think that the big thing is is that um, when Tom, uh, Joey, whatever we want to call him, when he when he allows himself to be this other side of himself, it also gives his son a reason to be okay with those tendencies that he has, with the hit, with his strength and his ability to stand up. And I do, I think that if he hasn't hadn't grown in that way, I think Tom Joey Viggo Mortensen dies uh, on his lawn. I don't think the son steps pulls up and pulls the pulls the trigger without having been allowed to be strong by seeing his dad be more than what he was. Yeah. It, I'm sure he was very much at conflict with these two sides of himself, but, and that, and I think that's, the son makes a really good foil. Like the sin, you know, the, the, he can't, he can't be a whole person and be what he needs to be uh, and become a man and become a, you know, a, he's only half of what he could be as well. And he doesn't know why at least, you know, Beagle Mortensen's character, Tom Joe, at least he knows why he's in, or he maybe he doesn't even realize he's why he's incomplete, but he has knowledge of what precipitated that kind of, you know, split and incomplete of him. Right. I don't think he even realizes that he's incomplete until it's forced upon him. I think you kind of wonder how this would have quietly ticked away in him had he not been revealed. Had this secret mm -hmm. spilled out later, would the fallout be even worse? That I think that's hinted at, but I don't think. Yeah, like I think that's a very valid question. I think that's a really that's it's it's a deep movie. I was really impressed. Like I say, I uh, there's not. I don't have very many bad things to say about this movie, and I can't even off the top of my head think of anything that you know glared in my face and you know. Well, I, I think can there's say. A, oh, sorry. I think there's a little bit of the, like the firefight at the end has a couple of you know weird bits but even that it's it's more it's the emotion you know, that find behind it i would argue that uh two of our villains one played by ed harris the other played by william hurt are bordering on overplaying their hand like they <laughs> are really pouring it on but mm -hmm. like they they make no bones we're bad men we're gangsters but like there, there's something, you know, there's the devil in Ed Harris's eyes. You know, he, he has no poker face at all. And William Hurt really lays on that thick accent and seems to really enjoy playing this utterly, you know, morally empty criminal. Uh, but when mm -hmm. you talk about the violence, when, when Tom does start like full on superheroing a little bit towards the end, snapping people's necks and being a ninja and killing not only without any emotion behind it, but very efficiently, very lethally. Like it, what happened in the uh, in the restaurant was reflexive. It was defensive. It was like a, just a reaction. Like I said, this was mm -hmm. the work of a precision killer. This was a man who was a superhero at killing. And it's the mm -hmm. most comic booky sequence of the movie, which is why the whole William Hurt excursion at the end sort of almost feels like its own little mini movie. I still yeah. like it, 
but we walk back into the reality as soon as we get back into that ending you say when he walks home and sits at the dinner table and the family looks at each other and sort of or you know begin the journey to reinventing themselves uh it's it's powerful stuff and it's in a package that is you know could have been you know like the back of a Sylvester Stallone 80s action movie right small town diner has a dark criminal past and the bad guys come looking for revenge uh but it's so much deeper than that yeah I guess I think that's one of the only you know it's not even that I can't even say it's really a knock against the movie but it is so different of a movie for this category than every, everything else. Um, it almost it, doesn't belong. <laughs> well, yeah, like there's, I mean, there's a whole, like, you know, like it's movies like, uh, you know, like uh, Ghost City and there's like a few other ones that are kind of serious comics. Oh, Ghost that, World, yeah. Or Ghost World, yeah, sorry. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of those that are like drama comics made into movies as opposed to like superhero stories. No. And this one kind of dances on the line. And it's it, it's the only thing that kind of maybe that's why it is hard to talk about it with these other ones in that same way, because it's like, well, it. And, and I guess partly, too, because I haven't read the comic book. So, you know, uh, there's a, I have a standard or I kind of one of the things one of my criteria points when I did that, like my how I'm going to rank these, this was the one that I I couldn't do as, it, it didn't fit the whole mold because I had other I had criteria like, well, how did it do with the story or what did it, did it accurately do this or did it transcend what it could do? You know, like all these things that I was like, well, that this did this better than that. And this, you know, when I was kind of ordering them and this one, I'm like, I just really like this movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's like, it's, it made it's it hard, hard to, to say to, that this is a comic book movie because it doesn't seem like a comic book movie. It seems like this pedigreed, you know, rich, deep Oscar movie, which, as it turns out, it is. Just happens mm-hmm. to be based on a comic. Maria but that, Bello, man, Maria oh. Bello is super hot. <laughs> I hate to oh, sound that's... so much like a dude, but holy shit! <laughs> you know what? My favorite scene, one of my favorite scenes with her. I love a couple. I thought they were you know um she's an amazing actress too by the way i don't just want to say she's beautiful she's an incredible actress but oh my god she's so sexy in this movie <laughs> oh that, but that, that the look on her face when she's shoe shopping and her girl's gone that's see like but you know and she knows she knows how bad this guy is and she's still like like mama bear like you came this close to my child yeah you i love that you know, fuck off right now <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it's not what in... you are it's not an easy role to play. It's like one of those things like, oh, I'm the supportive wife or I'm, you know, sort of the whining sort of shrill role in the background of all of this violence. And she gives it such depth. And uh, if when, if there was a weak link anywhere, I believe this firmly. If there was one weak performance in this, the whole deck of cards would fall. Yeah, no, like you... And, and I don't... I, I didn't feel like anybody... I didn't feel like any of the characters. It certainly hit the family. I mean, like the the mobster characters were all. Some of them were caricature-y, but um, everybody in the small town felt real, and his family felt the realest of all. One of my sorry, one of my favorite little scenes. I'm just gonna just because it's whatever. But the the right after the uh, the the bullies are driving their car and they like cut off. 
the uh, the real bad guys. Right. And they're like, they're like, no, we're going first. And the guy in the truck just gives him the flat, cold stare. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, it's like, we, we we we're not that. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, this is the difference between someone who is a braggart and somebody who's really bad news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was it was again a nonverbal scene, but it was just long enough. It was just right. Like, there's so many just right things in this movie. I was really happy with. Yeah. Well, uh, this sort of started a nice long chain relationship with uh, David Cronenberg and Viggo Mortensen. Um, he mm-hmm. did uh, the one about the Russian mob, Eastern Promises, and another one about a uh, famous psychologist whose name is going to escape me right now. So uh, it sort of opened a new sort of chapter in, in, in Cronenberg and an era that I so far have been enjoying quite a bit. If you have I really like Eastern seen, Promises as well. Yeah, if you have not seen A History of Violence, watch it. It mm-hmm. is second. It's the odd movie out in this group, and uh, that is kind of, you know, just how it worked out with these comic book adaptations. But uh, it's one of those things that I can imagine somebody listening to who's a fan of superhero stuff may may have missed, and uh, it's awesome. So you want to play? Ah! Who are you? I'm Hit Girl. And that's Big Daddy. Kick ass. Red Mist. Oh, shit! Ooh, fuck me, that kind of hurt. How do I get a hold of you? You just contact the mayor's office. He has a special signal that shines in the sky. It's in the shape of a giant cock. All right. In the 2010, Matthew Vaughn, uh, the guy who directed Stardust and this uh, British crime caper called Layer Cake. Uh, I love Layer Cake. Good movie. That is one of my favorite movies of all time. So Matthew Vaughn adapted this kick-ass comic book. And uh, I'm a fan of the director. I've got a real soft spot for Stardust. It's one of the best adaptations of Neil Gaiman that I've seen. I wanted to like Kingsman more than I did, but it's very popular. They're making a sequel to it. So, and I, his X Men movie it. is decent. So, uh, you know, he's a solid director. I will watch what he comes to the table with. Um, Kickass is an interesting animal for me. I, I've read a few like little snippets from the original source material, and it's uh, mm-hmm. much more the real world vigilante hero, sort of like we were talking about with the Watchmen universe. And that these are people mm-hmm. who dress up in costumes and, you know, beat people with baseball bats and shit. Like, they're human beings uh, that we're dealing with here. Well, and I think that that side of it, I mean, you're just talking about the second one and how it, it is whatever. But they they make a much bigger point of getting into the, the, the that these people exist or that these people are out there. These And they do, right? These people really do exist. But they don't necessarily actually fight people, but they like walk people across the street and help people through groceries and stuff and they do it in costume. Like it's not that crazy of an idea, right? I think once you get to the point where you're putting on a costume and fighting crime, there's a brilliant satirical sort of version of this called Super, which I think would be a nice companion piece to kick ass. 
I think what uh, what works for me in the Kick-Ass comic book, in a way, one of the things that I have a problem with in the Kick-Ass movie, I call mm-hmm. this problem sort of the Superman problem. Like, I like reading Superman in a comic book, but for some reason, seeing Superman in the tights in the movie flying around is just not the same thing. It just feels weird. It's not a comic book. In a way, it just works better as a comic book. Uh, the uh, level of violence that we see inflicted, particularly by Hit Girl, played by this, I think at the time, 12 or 13 year old Chloe Grace Moretz, is unbefucking leavable. And in the black and white panels of the comic book, I, I, like the idea of it, the story of it, is thrilling and fun. Actually seeing it play out on the big screen TV kind of shocked me. So much so that it, it took a little bit of the air out of the tires for me. When I watched it again, this time actually, I ended up enjoying the movie a lot more than I had the first time because I came in prepared for it. But there is something about this subject matter and the violence and how it's handled, which is honest. The movie is uh, is made changes as they made. It's a fair reflection of the source material. But Mm -hmm. in a way, I think that the Kick-Ass... It's hard to see. Kick-Ass works better as a book in a lot of ways than uh, than it does as a movie. That's its strength and its weakness, and uh, mm-hmm. that's where I want to start. But uh, you probably know more about this than I, so I'm going to hand it over to you, brother. Um, you know, I, it's one of those comics I read a long time ago, but I, I totally, I, I very much agree with what you're saying. Um, it is, it is, it's not even necessarily the violence inflicted by Hit Girl. The violence inflicted to Hit Girl is really hard to watch. Yeah. Like seeing a little kid, like especially in that fight scene at the end where she gets her, she gets beat really badly yeah. by the main villain, like really badly. Like she like, takes her legs, like hurt pretty bad, right? And I, I'm pretty sure uh, um, I'll say this, and then Hillary will like be like, "No, that's not how it happened." But I'm pretty sure we watched this movie when she was pregnant with Jamie, which would have made Elica five. And it was a really hard movie to watch when she was in an emotional state. Right. And I was like, I was like, Oh yeah, I hit, you know, one of the movies that we're reviewing is, uh, is kick-ass. And she was like, and I, and I expected her to be like, Oh, that movie. Cause she was really affected by it. And she was like, Oh yeah, I should maybe watch that again. And whatever, you know, it's like, Oh, I thought you hated that movie. She's like, no, I just, it's, it's hard to watch. And, I, and that's, there are parts of this movie that, and I don't think it's unintentional, that are hard to watch. I don't, I, I think that all of those scenes are very effective for what they are. I think there's a couple of scenes that are just really hard to watch. Um, the only parts of this movie I actually dislike are all the, uh, whatever, the red mist, whatever his, the Christopher Mintz Plass. Christopher Plass plays this sort of wannabe his dad is a legit crime boss and he's just sort of a, a petulant rich kid the he's the same in everything and i it doesn't add i don't i don't know it does it, that's the only he's the only character and it, and I, he's mainly known uh well he's not mainly known. he's been in a lot of things but he was introduced to the world as, as mclovin from Superbad. yeah and he's sort of played variations of that in different movies. Usually in small doses, he makes me smile. Actually, I didn't have a huge problem with the, in that he fit in with the world and that the joke about his character was that he was pathetic and that the yeah. more he was treated <clears throat> pathetically and the more abuse he took, the more all of a sudden he started to become a legitimate threat. Worked well enough for me. The, the cast 
across the board very good. I like Mark Strong. Like generally mm-hmm. speaking, I like Mark Strong as an actor. And uh, we have the sort of flash casting of Nick Cage here. <laughs> and uh, he is definitely absolutely bonkers off the hook. But for this particular role, I think it was really worth explaining. They, they don't go as deep into it in the in the movie as they do in the book. But no. in, in, in the comic book, as I recall, he tells her that, that you know, he has this tragic origin. That, that, that it's all, you know, this violent past and that this is sort of like a Punisher-like origin story where he's trying to protect her and avenge her. But as things play out in the story, we find out he's just out of his fucking mind. And uh, mm. that that he doesn't have a legitimate origin. He just likes inflicting violence on people, and at least he inflicts it on bad people. But by right. taking it this extra level and training this single-digit age category girl to be this lethal hit person, it's it's mm-hmm. really questionable. The man is insane. His friends are right to question him. The fact that her life returns to a normal thing is a win for the movie, and the fact that. <laughs> that Nick Cage plays him as a barking mad lunatic is appropriate. <laughs> yeah, I really like I I like Kick Ass. I didn't I don't I don't love it. I, it's not one of those movies that I'm like Ooh, I should watch Kick Ass. You know, I, <laughs> um, it it I don't think it does anything poorly. I don't think it does anything amazingly. The the whole movie kind of catches itself right off the right off the hop, where it's like that opening scene with the crazy person on top of the building, you know, with the with the wings, right, crashing into the car and dying. I mean, it it's basically saying that <clears throat> you're either crazy and going to die if you are a poor version of a superhero. That's why they don't exist. You're either crazy and you're going to die, or you're crazy and you're going to be a criminal yeah and there's no there's no middle ground there's no you know you you're either you're either a joke or you're a madman well and in this and world you're basically you're a, joke, you're a masked vigilante calling yourself a superhero that's what a superhero is yeah i think that the character that nicholas cage is playing is basically an indictment of batman if you want to do a real serious movie about batman christopher nolan you're doing a movie about someone who is severely mentally ill and who has violent predilections. And I don't know if people want that movie, but that's who that guy, I think, would be. And, well, oh, and what an unfortunate position it would be to be raised by such a monster. <laughs> oh, sure. But that's that's um, that's Rorschach, again, yeah. right? Like, that's... That, that there is no... You can't do a real movie about real people. They're real heroes that fight guys with guns unless they have guns. And unless you're as bad as them, right? Like that, that, that is a theme that comes up several times, right? Yeah. Um, I think that it's unfortunate too, that they couldn't really bend the medium in the way they did with uh, Watchmen and uh, Sin City, which we'll talk about to make it look closer to the comic book. It almost, and I guess we don't want this to be an animated movie, but the art in the book is not realistic really? necessarily. No. Like, the characters look more like cartoon people in some ways. So again, this transition to seeing it in living flesh is not entirely comfortable. 
Like, I don't know that there could be a like a version of Kickass that is necessarily superior to this adaptation. I mean, I think the problems with the adaptation is that it's just a really tough nut to crack. I said a similar thing about Watchmen. I think this mm-hmm. one goes down a little bit easier than Watchmen in a lot of ways, but its goals are it's a lot simpler. less. Yeah, it's a much more simple story. The goals are a lot less lofty than, than the Watchmen in that respect as well. It's a very watchable movie. Matthew Vaughn makes entertaining movies. There'll always be one or two scenes in his movies. You go, my goodness, that man can make a film, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is no exception. Like, watch this movie as you would any Matthew Vaughn film. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I, I'm not overly enthusiastic either. I'm not, I'm not as connected to the source material, but uh, I think that I would prefer, very strongly prefer the comic to the film in this particular outing. Yeah, well, and, and I think that, you know, the, 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 the violence really stands out in it. And, if you, I mean, if you have a problem with violence, it's going to be a bad movie to watch. Like, you're not going to enjoy this movie at all. If you have any kind of, you know, like, and if, like, you don't, if you can't handle seeing a kid getting punched in the face, like, yeah. do not watch this movie because it happens over and over again. And it, it may be a comic book movie, but this <clears throat> is brutal. This is hard R kind yeah. of stuff. And uh, like I said, I recently reviewed Dread, another comic book adaptation. I could totally understand somebody watching this on the wrong day and this not agreeing with them. Like, I get it. <laughs> it's a, I love Dread. It's, it's, I love Dread, don't get me wrong, but I mean, if somebody could, if walked into the room and like, what mm-hmm. the fuck are you watching? <laughs> if you're having well, a bad day, if you're particularly sensitive that day, maybe that's not your bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely in that window, and because it deals with primarily children, it's kind of shocking. Uh, mm-hmm. It's. It, I think that it peaks early for me, uh, not as early as you said. It's not the initial sort of suicide of the crazy person off the building, but the first time Kickass gets his homemade uniform out and goes on the street, and instead of having the scene you expect, like at the beginning of a Spider-Man origin tale or something like that, where he proves himself and uh, gets you know off on yeah. you know finally. Winning one for the good guys, he gets his ass handed to him, and not just a little bit. He is in the hospital and almost dies. <laughs> so I, the fact that he got stabbed as badly as he did, I didn't. I was like, ooh, that's. Uh, I don't think that's just a. And now you're back out of the hospital. Like that's yeah. that. That's a significant, serious, life-changing <laughs> wound. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I like Kick-Ass, but it's not amazing. I think we're more or less on the same page. Is there anything else you want to say before we move on? No, I think I, it, it's worth a watch, but again, just trigger warning, violence against children. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you have a problem with children and violence in the same thing, which, which is very understandable, then Kick-Ass might, might be a sensitive spot for you, yes. If you bruise easily, you may want to stay at home. Get in the car, baby. We'll just talk. It'll be nice. You just kind of done the dumbest thing in your whole life. The truth of Sin City will be shattered. Let the girl go. You know who my father is? You can't do a thing to me, Hardigan. Go 
stop your breath. There'll be death. Nothing can stop this. Time to prove to your friends that you're worth a damn. We'll fight the cops and the mob. We'll go to war. This isn't some barroom, bro. This is the bad days. The all or nothing days. Robert Rodriguez is a pretty interesting director. And he's a very prolific director. Um, I think that uh, he chooses interesting projects and he sort of likes to challenge himself. And in the case of Sin City, he was reading the comic book and he just decided, like, this isn't a comic book. These are storyboards. This is a movie. Mm -hmm. And I want to put, you know, this Sin City comic book on the screen as literally as I possibly can without going fully animated. And... If that was his goal, to transplant the pages of this, this series of graphic novels to the screen, on that measure, he is 100% successful. The movie looks unbelievable. It, it like Stylistically, the, the sort of font color filters that they put on uh, all of the shots to make it strange silhouettes and colors pop and uh, black and white except for certain you know sections of the panels emulating exactly how the comic book has been illustrated it's perfect but much like i talked about with kick-ass um when you get right down to it sin city is this over-the-top noir cheesed kind of cheesy uh dames and guns kind of universe it mm -hmm. is like not deep <laughs> and what? Wh what you have here is two and a half hours of style and violence uh yeah. visually morning. amazing but all of the flaws from the pages of the book seem to ring louder on the screen than they do in the book for me um I think that there is something very simplistic and kind of cheesy about the dialogue that when you're reading it in the balloon in a comic book you kind of go Bleh. but uh when you hear it's delivered on the screen, it, it just, it hurts your ears a little bit. A, something in the translation, as visually strong as it is, much like I said with Kick-Ass, I think this works better as a black and white comic book than it does as a living, half-animated piece of cinema. But I totally realize that I am in the minority with this opinion. So uh, where does Brock yes. land on Sin City? I hear what you're saying, but it's noir, right? Like, it's the kind of stuff that wouldn't seem out of place in a... I don't know. I mean, if it was in a Sam Spade novel, would it seem cheesy? Like, it's kind of a reflection of its time that it's... Like, it, this is not set in, a, in you know, a modern-day thing. It's in its... It's it's a bit of a any time, you know, like how the Batman animated series was always in a weird, like, what time is this actually set in? Because the cars look like they're from the 50s, but there's stuff from the wherevers, right? It's that, highly that stylized, absolutely, yeah. But um, to me, the most distracting, weird things in it that t I found took away from it is um, a lot of the inconsequential or less consequential characters that are either just there to fill the screen for a few seconds until they die or, um, you know, provide a little bit of whatever, you know, like schlub and, uh, you know, the, the whatevers, right? Those, the, the mooks, right? right. Kind of the, those characters. 
they let off a few zingers and then they get killed. Yeah. yeah the and they're often their kind of their time on screen is kind of like it's it's kind of jar jarry, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's in a comic book in what them being in one panel saying that one line and then in the next panel them dying whatever um you're exactly you're okay with it but in this it it's like it it feels like something lucas would have added in the (laughs) recuts of his first three movies you know like what is is very melodramatic on the page becomes crazy melodramatic in a movie or just loses it and is goofy Right? It like, goes uh, all the way to the other end. There's a scene yeah. that I wanted to talk about where I think is, is, is very emblematic of this. Um, basically, the story of Sin City, it's an anthology movie in a lot of ways. We're basically shown this crazy, highly stylized environment of Sin City, and we're introduced into several characters. And uh, we have a character who's sort of a good guy, represented by uh, Bruce Willis. We have a character who's sort of a bad guy, represented by... There's four, pardon me. Four stories, though. Yeah. That's the problem. That's one of the problems. Yeah. We have a character that sort of represents the bad guy, the Mickey Rourke character, and then we have the character in between, the Clive Owen character. But all of them are basically going to be doing basically short, violent tales that is going to show us all of the darker, more interesting corners of Sin City. There's not so much an overarching story as there is, you know, different varying chapters of bloodletting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's what the book sort of functions on. But there's a scene where uh, we know there's a serial killer in operation, and uh, the Mickey Rourke character shows up, and this woman, who I believe was his lawyer, has been held captive there, and her hand... Uh, she's a social worker. A social worker, pardon me. The social worker's there, and her hand has been severed and eaten. And they do this sort of push onto her face, and she says, He made me watch! He made me watch! And I can mm-hmm. see that panel in the comic book working, like, as mm-hmm. sort of a, that's a disturbing moment. But in the movie, it kind of made me smile, and I don't think it was supposed to. Yeah. And those are the sort of moments in the movie that takes me out of it. For all of the visual achievement, I think, like, I, that's where my echo chamber of this review is. For all of the visual achievements, it's not deep. It's a very simple, bloody, blunt movie. And if you're in the mood for that, by all means, gorge on Sin City. But when I talk about the even Kick-Ass or, you know, even The Crow has deeper wells to sort of dip into sort of thematically and story-wise than, than Sin City. Sin City is bluntly what it says it is, and you can respect it for that, you know? Not everything, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, right? <laughs> uh, well, this I, is I, about I, sex and yeah. violence and nothing else, and that's fine, but uh, for all of the praise lauded upon the movie, you'd think that it was well, there was more to it than that. And in my opinion, there kind of isn't. <laughs> Yeah, one of the one of the things I don't disagree. But I think one of the things that, um, like when I was talking, like I kind of have these criteria that I was using to evaluate the movies. Um, one of the things I, I kind of was like, well, did the movie transcend material? And this is one of those ones where the material isn't any deeper than the movie, right? Like, there's not like this is some great work of fiction. It's it's short, brutal, dark stories. 
and stylized um, sex and violence. You know, it's it's funny that you said that he took it as like the story awards. It's actually it's it's almost more so, right? Like if you if you said, okay, well we're doing a movie, it's going to be this noir piece, it's going to have a bunch of four you know four independent movies or whatever four vignettes in it that are going to tie together, and one of them's going to be cut in half and yada yada, but altogether it's going to be in the same universe. So we need it to be storyboarded. Let's get the same artist to draw it. And if you hired Frank Miller, who you know got a director's credit on it. Well, if uh, Rodriguez really wanted to do Frank Miller a favor, he would endeavor to take his name off of the spirit. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well, I don't know. <laughs> but so anyway, um, the crazy thing about it is, yeah. So anyway, if you were just doing that and you said, okay, well, we're going to get Miller does this really cool work. We're going to get him to storyboard it. And he storyboarded it and did it all with that, like, pen and ink and, you know, uh, contrasted whatever. And they said, okay, that's fantastic. We're going to make a movie based on that. And they just shot a movie based on that. It would be a movie. But they actually take the comic book as a storyboard, but bring it, bring the storyboard to life, which is an amazing accomplishment. And they turn normal-looking people into these direct reflections of the material. And that visual, like you say, visually, that that is an amazing achievement. I would never have imagined you could have taken that movie, real-lifed it, CGI'd on top of it, and turned it into something that cool. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, uh, like a Scanner Darkly kind of does the same thing. Like, they take real stuff, and then they put stuff on top of it, and it changes it into its own crazy new... It is. It almost seems like a variation on rotoscoping in some way. That's the technology you're talking about for Scanner Darkly, where they, they yeah. shoot the film and then basically draw over top of the negatives, uh, animate yeah. it that way. Um, this isn't quite that. I think it would be one of these things that would be very strange to shoot, and I think that they really mm -hmm. help themselves by getting good actors. I know that this is sort of the movie that's known as the movie that kind of brought Mickey Rourke out of, you know, quasi mm -hmm. celebrity dumpster you know uh, into some somewhat mainstream for a little while anyway uh, he's always going to be a flaky motherfucker <laughs> but I think he definitely brings the goods here and I agree I can't imagine anyone else as Marv at this point like oh. I don't know who they could have got to do it and he fucking nails it um, the, the, the four stories that and that that is another problem with the movie is that the source material has a range of good stories to kind of whatever stories. And uh, The Yellow Bastard is a weird story. Uh, and the, the Great Big Kill is a weird story. And the, the Marv story... The Hard Goodbye. The Hard Goodbye, thank you. Um, of all of the things... Of all the stories that they tell, it's the best. It's the best story. It falls together the best. It has its moments where it's whatever, um, but it's my favorite story. Like there's some of my, and and again, and Mickey Rourke kills it. He yeah. does such an amazing job. Um, uh, I love the, the constant upgrading of his coat. Like it's just a great story, um, and it's it's simple. It's you know it's a revenge thing. It's you know, it, it really catch, captures the doing the right thing and the, and the darkness of it. 
without, you know, like it's it's not a, you know, I think it's when he's talking to his social worker, he's like, no, 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 you're 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 overthinking it. This is the this is the good old days, the blood and guts days. This is the, you know, someone got done bad and I'm doing them back. You know, like it's that that's all this is. This is just a revenge story, and and it's that is this movie at its best, and the other stories have good parts to them but i don't you know that's i'm not as i don't like the stories as much and i think that they don't carry as, as much weight as it but it's yeah like generally speaking much like the book the guys have interesting parts and the girls show interesting parts <laughs> i kind of felt bad for a lot of the female uh, cast in, in this movie rosario dawson somehow manages to retain some level of dignity uh, Brittany Murphy is memorable as uh, in you know one of her last roles there, and uh, but for the most part, yeah, they're strippers and they need to be rescued, or you know someone's trying to rape them, or they're mm-hmm. a victim, they're 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 instruments of sex and revenge and uh, mm-hmm. plot points. Uh, the guys are allowed to have a little bit more character, a little more depth, even the the baddies like. <laughs> Uh, Nick Stahl is that fucking lunatic uh, mm-hmm. with the crazy deformed face. Um, mm-hmm. When you have to imagine when they were shooting it, he probably at least had the makeup on to help him. Most of the environments probably wouldn't be present. You know, they would be on a oh, stage yeah. that was probably full of blue or green screens and had very basic props and stuff in front of them. I think that it would be it would be a difficult thing to pull off. And uh, people that uh, people show up to work. Benicio del Toro's character has no depth to him at all. He's a completely hateful, evil, you know, undimensioned character. But Benicio brings some interesting sort of levels to it. Uh, you know, he, the it, best his best scene is is the dead Benicio in the car with him. Yeah, exactly. Where, where he's, Speaking as the that's voice the sequence of Owen's that, insecurities. That's the sequence that Tarantino directed. The scene where Clive Owen is driving to drop the body into the tar pits. And he has this sort of schizophrenic episode where he believes that the corpse in his car is talking to him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, the movie is a living, breathing cartoon in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. But... The good performances come out of it. It could have been, it's not, I'm saying, but it really could have been The Phantom Menace, where you have these really good mm-hmm. actors in rooms where they don't know what they're talking about, they know what they're going for. I think having the comic book there, everybody had something to orient them right away. They knew what the shot was, they knew you know, why they were playing it so over the top. They didn't have to feel awkward and humiliated, like most of the cast did in Star Wars. So... <laughs> it's 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 a very successful movie, but I I I'm, I I always felt like I didn't I I like Sin City, but everybody seems to like it way more than I do for some reason. I, I guess uh, I just I, it's one of those movies where I know because I know the stories, I I I don't have any expectations of depth, right? I know it's just going to be that and. So then to see that brought to life so well without any expectation of there being anything beyond that makes it a lot, makes it a triumph. In, uh, and I mean, visually, it's a triumph. Absolutely, visually, it's a triumph. And accomplishment of taking 
a completely different genre and turning it into a living other genre without losing really losing anything of what was on you know in the print but i mean it ain't shakespeare yeah in a way <laughs> this is the ultimate comic book adaptation to a certain degree and that fanboys get outraged when they change shit. You heard me sort of micro-editing over the Watchmen over, they made so few changes, why would they fuck with this, right? Uh, uh, Sin City fucks with nothing. It is as pure an adaptation as you could have ever wanted. So maybe my uh, sort of indifference to the movie is probably reflective of the indifference I would have to the graphic novels. I've only read The Hard Goodbye, and only because it happened to come with this special edition set that I got of the movie. And I, I, I like, you know, sort of the baseline drawings, and I like sort of the limited use of color and how it's framed, and I sort of understand how it could reflect cinematically. But again, mm -hmm. I keep repeating myself, much like with Kick-Ass, I think it's just something that might work better as a comic book than as a movie. If our own government was responsible for the deaths of 100,000 people, you really want to know? You're getting back at them for what they did to you. Fear became the ultimate tool of this government. I want everyone to remember why they need us. I wish I wasn't afraid all the time. People should not be afraid of their governments. The government should be afraid of their people. This is exactly what he wants. Chaos. The movie looks fucking fantastic. Yeah, there's and, some crazy scenes in that movie. Yeah. And the pendulum uh, scene is really hardcore. It's it's a dystopian future that's being presented here. It's also another adaptation of another Alan Moore book. And in his, it was a very, you know, large wagging the finger of the Thatcher era of, of mm -hmm. the British government. Uh, so a lot of that stuff was going to be lost on me. Uh, I was sort of going to be looking at it as another sort of vigilante Cape Crusader superhero kind of movie. And um, I'm on board. I think Natalie Portman's a really great actress. I think Hugo Weaving does amazing work with a difficult uh, shield. He's got a fucking dinner plate over his face. Hey, do you remember when we were talking a long time ago, we talked about the first Spider-Man movie? Absolutely. And, My pet peeve. And we were talking... What's your pet peeve about that movie? I'll just say it again in case no one's ever heard it before. Because it, it turned into Power Rangers at the end. Yeah. Basically, two, they did... Two, a, uh, we can't see any expression on Spider-Man. We can't see any expression on the Green Goblin. They have this prolonged conversation, and it's ridiculous. It, it like I, I don't they, we don't see the performance. We just see the costume. And I will so, say that this guy Fox mask that is over top of uh, the our main character's face throughout the whole movie that does because of the amount of pontificating he does. I do get tired of looking at the dinner face. I would really like to be able to see an actor. But the second they do that, it's like Judge Dredd taking his helmet off. You don't do it. V has to have the mask. So but as much as it's an obstacle, I respect that as a choice. Despite the, the mask, the amount of emotion that he carries and the amount of emotion that he puts in his words and the, you know, the classical training, obviously, and just the body language, I, I, to, to put those two side by side, one of them looks like Power Rangers, and the other one is somebody transcending the fact that they can't use their face. Yeah. And it, it, it's such a, like, I find that a very, like, to me, that's a huge difference between them, is that I 
pull so much realistic, believable emotion from V despite that. That that is part of why I just the movie just blows me away. With I love Hugo Weaving's. Uh, well, I love his voice. He's yeah. just awesome. But anyway. Uh, I've studied drama and I've done some work with masks. That's right. I've lived, motherfuckers. But uh, if you've ever if you've ever looked at just what they call a neutral mask, there's something really mm-hmm. spooky about it. It supposedly has no expression and every expression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and depending on how you're walking around or what you're doing with your body, it's become strangely expressive. The Guy Fox mask doesn't quite manage that, but that's what they're going for for it. But he he manages a lot of things with it, and they do some work with the with the lighting to highlight different areas of the mask. Like they'll mm-hmm. tilt it down for the more sinister scenes, or they'll do a side on so that you catch the curve of the smile when it's kind of a sardonic. Like they're the direction they're, trying. they're working on it. it. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say, uh, and we'll get to the plot in right one second here, but for a movie that's a dystopian future, uh, uh, the fact that they got John Hurt to play the big bad. As an interesting sort of counterbalance measure to the, of course, 1984. <clears throat> I like. So, what have I said so far? Visually amazing. Cast is amazing. Our lead is amazing, despite the fact that he's wearing a dinner plate over top of his face. So, the only place that I run into problems, Brock, and I do, is the story. Really? I have some very real problems and quandaries with the story issues with this movie they've always rubbed me the wrong way it's always kind of burned me and um it it keeps me a little bit at arm's length in a way that i'm not as enthusiastic about it as can i'll I'll just let me just say the plot really Mm -hmm. quickly um our main character played by natalie portman do you remember her name off your top of your head right now of course i don't evie thank you um living in this future uh finds herself in the wrong alley on the wrong day in the wrong night uh, being rescued by a masked vigilante V. And he seems intrigued by her and shows her this elaborate terrorist explosive that he has set up. And they do, you know, the big operatic dance score and we see the buildings Mm -hmm. fall. This is her introduction to him and through this she ends up a person of interest to the government and uh, we have... Um, Stephen Ray, who I talked Mm -hmm. about recently from Citizen X and Stuck, Mm -hmm. another really good actor uh, in this movie, who uh, seems to have a little bit of a soul despite the fact that he's clearly a cog in the machine. He he does question some of the shit that's going on behind the scenes. So Mm -hmm. between the government trying to hunt down very ruthlessly V and stop his uh, terroristy shenanigans... um, Mm -hmm we sort of see the journey of our Natalie Portman character's Eve from sort of a person who is just living in the world unaware of the world and the corruption around her to someone actively fighting against it. Um, so that's the basic premise of the movie. And uh, mm-hmm. Cole's notes. There's a sequence in the movie about the two-thirds mark where Natalie Portman finds herself awakening in a prison cell. <clears throat> Where she is tormented, brutalized, starved, she has her head shaved, and tortured for information about V. Mm-hmm. And then it is realized, or we are, we are informed, that it was not, in fact, the evil 1984 John Hurt-led government that was doing this to her. It was V himself. V tortured Evie to get her mm-hmm. on board to his 
side of the board to how he's seeing the world. This is the kind of shit they would do. And this is the kind of shit I'm going to put a stop to. This shit, this torture that I'm inflicting upon you right here. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know where I land on that other than it being kind of preposterous from both ends. I don't know how he would think she would be convinced by that. And I don't know why she would do anything but, you know, kill the fuck out of him or hate him for going about it that way. We couldn't have had a conversation. It was really necessary to imprison and torture me. You needed to Guantanamo Bay me to get me to mm -hmm. be on board with your terrorist actions. And this yes. is where it gets kind of crazy because of all of the imagery and uh, the, the Guy Fox mask has been appropriated by Anonymous, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that they do some great stuff on the internet uh, as far as, you know, keeping the inter info information free. Mm -hmm. But they're also full of trolls and whatnot as well. You know, you got to yep. take the good with the bad. I don't think that this is a necessary facet. I think it's a ridiculous sort of tangent to the story. And it mm. makes me think less of both V and Evie. Right. When the first time that they meet, she asks him who he is. And he kind of asks, his response is, um, why are you asking a man in a mask who he is? <laughs> There's a man wearing a mask. Obviously, I'm wearing a mask. If I wanted you to know who I was, I wouldn't be wearing a mask kind of thing. Like, he says it better and whatnot. Um, but that question frames their entire relationship. She asks who he is. She says she wants to live without fear. And he has no... He And he does not say he is not a monster. He very much says, I am a monster. And they are a monster that was created by other monsters, and all I am here to do is to kill the monsters that created me and made me the monster I am. So, um, and the only thing he can do to show, to take away her fear is to do what was done to him. To sh put her through the same crucible, and there's this parallel, the parallel images of the crucibles that they went through. He goes through a crucible of fire, she goes through a crucible of rain, and they do this flashback and forth where on the rooftop where she gets it, where she's... She has her she's, little shot she's ex, redemption she's, moment. She's, ex, she's accepted her death. And and it's really neat because at the end, when he there's this part where she offers him love and and basically says, go away from this. Like, don't, don't do your thing. And he says, no. He walks away. He's like, this is my job. This is my purpose. I'm created by this. I don't get the girl. I get the death. I take them down with me and I kill them all. And the cop character that you're talking about finds the bomb down in the subway after after V is dead and she's placed him in the in the subway bomb with the Spoilers, roses. Spoilers, kids. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> they, it's all good. Yeah. Anyway, and she's got her hand on the like launch button for the explosion. And he's like, you do that and I will kill you. And she's like, and, and without her going to the point where, you know, because it's the whole, you know, she's offered her life one last time in that torture scene. And he says, I wanted to stop. I didn't want, but I, I needed you, you, you weren't at the point where you would say, then fucking kill me. If, if you, if the price is betraying this or the price, you know, I believe in this more, then 
than dying. Like what, what would you need? Like we, we talk about like suicide bombs, like, you know, Oh, there are these, no, these are people who have been pushed to the point where their lives matter less than the cause. And that's where she needs to get. And it doesn't happen easily. It's not something that happens to someone who's had an easy life without, without, without whatever. It's someone who's been shaped and pushed and, and, and you know, off into this with this, this side where the, their life is worth, worth, less, worth less than their cause. And she lives that. She lives the, you know, she has the fake moment where he says, well, then I'm going to kill you. And she says, fine, take me out and shoot me behind the chemical shed. I'm that that's where I am. That's I've, I've, she has, a, she in that moment is saying, end my life, I will not betray what I've come to, to believe in. Can I ask you a question? And, and then it, and then it gets put literally on the line where she's got her hand on the thing and the guy's got a gun in her face and he says, stop or I'll shoot. And she says, then shoot. And if she hasn't gone through all of that to get there, she may not have done that. And the whole thing falls apart. If during the torture sequence, she'd given up V's name, or everything she knew about V, what would have happened? Do you think? I don't know. Who knows? It doesn't. It's a story. That's how yeah. the story goes. The whole thing, Eve, right? E V, right? She's. Mm. It's a V again. The V through the whole thing, but she's Eve. She's the new. V. She's the. She's the next, right? Yeah. Like if he's the god, he's. She's the created. Next, and she's the one. He doesn't blow up the thing at the end. Yeah. She does. She pulls the trigger. I think that that would have more weight to it, if not for the fact that every citizen rallies behind them and shows up in a Guy Fox mask at the end of the movie. Because they didn't go through that crucible of torture. They're just on board. Also, everybody in the city is looking for the dude wearing that cape and that mask. There seem to be an awful fucking lot of them. But yeah, I understand it's based on a comic book. And I understand that it's interesting and subversive to set a hero as a terrorist uh they did a similar thing in the dead zone basically where our protagonist mm -hmm. is trying to assassinate the president or a presidential nominee for the united states of america and he's our hero I... that we cheer for uh in in a way that's kind of what's happening here right v mm -hmm. puts bombs in in political targets and explodes buildings and dances about gleefully and he pontificates and he philosophizes and he has an ideology and I'm turned off by the fact that he feels the need that, yeah, in order to get you on board to my, to, to become me, you have to go through my torment. You have to go through this hell. Uh, it, to me, I think he's a heroic people, person if he's protecting people from hell. If John hurts corruption, how bad is his corruption that it is worse than this torment that he's subjecting Natalie Portman to? How how much improved in her life? She maybe sees the world more realistically, but is she a happier, more comfortable person at the end of the movie than she is at the beginning? I don't know. It's an interesting movie, and I'm certainly, like, I'm not against it. I still give mm -hmm. it a positive review. I think it's visually strong. I think that the performances are strong, but I have I ask hard questions of it because mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. an ambitious movie. So, uh, but it's a vendetta. Yeah, it's personal. It's not. It's 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 a revenge story. It's not. He's not in it for the revolution. He's taking down everyone that fucked with him. Yeah. It's and 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 he. Maybe I so wanted to like V and I didn't. Maybe that's that's why. Maybe we're not supposed he's to a like monster. V. Yeah, he totally is a monster. Yeah. If you want to say, if you want to see someone that you like, you look at uh, Stephen Fry's character. He's yeah. the he's the pleasant reflection of him, right? 
he's the happy jokey guy who's inspired and does the whatever side of it but he's that's the that's his like he foils him that way and it's very i mean it's very blatant that they're that they're foiling them that way right like so i like the movie and i'm sorry to i didn't i feel like i spent the whole review talking down to your one of your favorite movies and i i do like it um but it's something that's always stuck in my craw uh if it sticks in your craw and it start gets us talking about it that's fine i <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying i don't i and i Again, it's that um, you know we have these these guys doing bad things to people to corrupt them to their to their way of thinking. I mean that was in we saw that like that's kind of kick-ass parallel and whatever. But I, I mean I certainly from the whole perspective of does that story hold together that someone who would be like that would act, you know would, that you would actually still stay with it. I mean he's also saved her life. There's some Stockholm stuff. She's got you know she had her parents ripped away from her. You know she's you know, there's a whole there's She's a very complex character, and I, I don't disagree that there's a, a way that that story is, you know, you're like, no, I don't think you would actually be okay with that. I think you'd freak the fuck out and punch him in the face and try and run. You're supposed to be the good guy? You're the good guy? <laughs> I spent all this time being tortured, not giving you up, and you were the fucking person fucking torturing me? No. When she says that to him. Yeah. Right? And I mean, it's not—it's not an easy thing for her to come to grips with. She, she almost loses her mind in that scene. Yeah. Like Natalie Portman, you know, it's—it's it's really her story. Yeah. Having read the comics, I—I think—I think if you hadn't or aren't super familiar with the comics, uh, it would really—I can easily see how you'd be like, "Wow, that guy is awful." I thought he was supposed to be the good guy because he kind of does come across like there's so many scenes at the beginning where you're like, "Oh no, he's a hero. He saves people. He, you know, certainly brutally violence and whatever." But he's, you know, he's very nice to her. He's very charming. He's very whatever. But if you know the story, seeing it isn't as it's not as much of a, it doesn't feel like as much of a trail if you've kind of already been down that road. So I don't know. I I just say I, I don't disagree. I, I know what you're saying, uh, but I I love that scene. I I do very harsh idea and concept it's an interesting subversive memorable movie i just think it's a little flawed What was your least favorite of these six movies and why? Uh, amazingly, it was The Crow, Salvation. What? Because it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, I think the, the, the thing, the completely unforgivable thing about it, for me, was just like the, the moment where they're like, oh, yeah, I've heard about this. There's these guys, they come back from the dead. And yeah. I'm like... What did you read about this in Taxidermy Weekly or you in read about Police it in the script. Weekly or <laughs> Creepy Guy Weekly? Like, who's writing this shit down? Uh, fifth and then place, my number then? two is Kick Ass. I hate to put it that low, but I really like all the rest of the movies, and I just think it's just it's good. It's just not that good. And then uh, number three is Watchmen. Uh, I want to love this movie so much more than I do, but it's 
just drives me nuts at times. And it's just bad directing decisions. And it, it's different when you see something you really like and they do it better. But when you see something you really like and there's parts of it that are, are worse, it, it, it stings a bit more. And then number, what are we at? Three okay. is Sin, Sin City. Okay. Uh, I really expected that to be my number two until I watched History of Violence. And then I watched History of Violence <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> that was a really damn good movie. And uh, which and History of Violence is number two. And then I have V for Vendetta at, at the top. It's, it is one of my favorite movies. It wasn't going to, I doubt I was, I was really surprised how close uh, History of Violence came to it though, right. because I really like that movie. Um, and I think the only reason that I, I have to say, like, you know, put it to V for Vendetta in the tie, uh, is it's certainly resonated beyond it's, it's become, like you say, like the masks are there. People wear the, the thing, like it's transcended itself. It's had cultural impact. Absolutely. It's an amazingly poignant movie. It's even more poignant movie now than when you or a story now than when you look at when it was actually written pretty good list man um no we're we're certainly not matching uh and a double fuck you to the crow salvation too because i think if not for that movie we might have gone zero for six and i'd be throwing a prize in the mail to you right now <gasps> oh no oh well um but the the crow salvation is the worst of these films easily and it's mainly it's unnecessary and it was unnecessary as it was being made it it seemed like the product that was a contractual obligation for the studio and it was a a paycheck for the cast like i i don't know you know who the movie was for after a point they do not go any further past the original crow nothing has or i think will at this point so it's funny because i when i used to collect comics um, like there was a couple of, like they did a series, a couple series of comics, like after, like other crows and whatever after. And I, I don't think this is one of the ones that I had collected, but I remember all the, like, even if you took the comic books, like the comic book sequels to the crow and put them next to the original, it felt very much like this. It's like, Oh, we're going to do this take on the story again. It's like, why are you trying to recreate something that is a singular piece of art? and just doing it poorly all over again, yeah. and which this was. So uh, other than The Crow Salvation, the rest of this list, I'm going to say, I think if you're into genre movies, you're into comic book movies, I'm going to say give them a look. I think they're worth a pass. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but our list is vastly different. In fifth place, I put Sin City. Um, mm. I think it's a beautiful movie, and that's in a lot of ways it. Like. I could almost watch it with the sound off and just play music. It, 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 mm-hmm. it, and it's achievement in that I can't really overstate. It's amazingly done. But everything else is kind of over the top and obvious and fun in its own way. But like uh, I think there is more fun to be had in other places on the list. It's an mm-hmm. is what it is movie. It's also quite long. It's like two and a half hours long. I think that... Uh, uh, watching it the first time I was just so wowed by the spectacle I was like yeah lots of fun every time I watch it again it sort of feels like it's a little bit more more mm-hmm. more you know more to the level Re- of almost too much <laughs> Rewatching it for this I 
didn't like it as much as I remembered liking it. Yeah. All the way in fourth position, my friend, I put V for Vendetta. And again, I think that production value is strong, the cast is strong. I Some story issues rubbed me the wrong way, and it kind of took me out of the movie for the third act. And mm -hmm. uh, if, I, yeah, if I'm honest, that's just where I landed on the movie. It's definitely one of those movies that I want to like more than I do. All the way in third position, I put The Watchmen. Uh, I kind of focused on the stuff that I didn't like when we were talking about the review, but the truth is they do get a lot of stuff right. Right out the mm -hmm. gate, the opening credit sequence is incredible as far as establishing the world that this story takes place in and uh, giving us the you know pages out of the comic book falling out. Mm -hmm. The whole execution of the comedian, the blood dripping on the smiley face button, you can tell that you know a lot of respect went to the source material. Um, it's because they were so close to being right dead on that when they when they swerve off the line, it becomes loudly jarring. Mm -hmm. But it's an impressive movie in a lot of ways. So all the way in three. I had a lot of negative things to say about Kick Ass during the review, but in a way, the problems with Kick Ass is maybe my hang up with the translation of the comic book to film. I can't imagine them doing a better adaptation of Kick-Ass, but I think Kick-Ass is better served as a comic than as a movie. But it's an amazingly well-made movie. The action sequences are incredible. It's funny and it's subversive. So uh, in, as far as it achieving the goals that it sets for itself, I think that Kick-Ass acquitted itself mm -hmm. admirably and it sort of surprised me how high on the list it climbed as a result that i'm surprised that you have it that high i don't i mean i like it but i don't yeah yeah but a history of violence is the movie that actually put some tears in my eyes and actually like emotionally really rock solid connected to and you're absolutely right in saying brock this is the odd one out it's not exactly that it's a real world movie but it's just it doesn't feel like a comic book movie the villains are kind of broad strokes and, and, you know, evil and, you know, they wear black hats and they die, mm -hmm. you know, these sort of bloody basic deaths. But the themes and the depth of the characterizations and the emotions just reverberated with me way deeper than anything else. And uh, because I connected to it that way and because it's a movie I've returned to and that I find kind of fascinating, um, I just... It's a movie out of this list of movies that people listening to the podcast as, are as likely to have not have seen, you know, mm -hmm. because you're really into the Watchmen, it doesn't necessarily go that you will be as excited about a history of violence, but you kind of should be, because I think yeah. it's, it's a really strong movie. It, it was by far, I mean, obviously I'd seen almost all of them except for The Crow before this but I was I, I I was amazed at how good a movie it was. I was like I mean, comic book based or not, it is just a solid solid movie. Like that was, and I do. It's funny that you say that because I found myself upon finishing it, really because I watched it without Hill, because um, when we tried to watch it, it, the sound wasn't working, so I had to watch. I ended up watching it on my phone because that was the only thing that would work to play it That's in the format nice. it was in. But uh, I was like, immediately, I was like, oh, 
Hill needs to watch this movie. I want to talk about this movie with her, right? So, but it's deep. Yeah, it it's is. one of those ones and, that, and full frontal. Yeah, <laughs> there's a stigma to comic movies in some pe- to some people, and uh, yeah, they would look at yeah. a movie like this and say that was based off a graphic novel. There's other ones too, like uh, uh, Road to Perdition, or you were talking like mm-hmm. Ghost World or American yeah. Splendor, or where like comic books. Uh, it's not a genre as much of a as a medium it's a medium mm-hmm. that can express any genre so uh, a comic book doesn't mean superhero and it certainly doesn't mean simple and if anything else i think this list of movies kind of backs that conceit up mm-hmm. yeah and i think there's i mean you've probably got another set of them easily just from you know half of them you just mentioned you could throw like 300 into it and a couple other stuff and you'd be you know well, we could do another one. Uh, yeah, that would be same. really super awesome, Brock, because I love having you on board, and I really appreciate you doing this. I know we differed greatly in our lists, but I think as much as we differed in our lists, we kind of agreed that it's a good batch of movies, and with the exception of The yeah. Crow's Salvation, it's they're worth a look. Uh, everybody's going to have think, a opinion. I don't think there's anybody listening to this that was like, that was like looking at the movies that we were going to review and went, hmm, you know, of those six, I think The Crow's Salvation... Is no. the one that we're gonna watch? Like, There's I somebody out me. there, Matt Risling, out in uh, in Toronto, and he <laughs> saw the image pop up on his screen, and he saw the Crow Salvation. He said, "I cannot wait to hear what Larry has to say about the Crow Salvation." <laughs> that, that's like someone seeing a, a a link on their Facebook that says, "You know, man falls in crocodile tank. You have to, <laughs> you, you know, Larry's gonna review the Crow." I gotta... <laughs> I can't well, listen to that. It's not. He's not. He's not listening to it to to, to hear you say anything good about it. Thank you no. so much for participating in the seventieth episode of Rank and Review. That's, that's epic. You've done a great job with this, and I love listening to them. So I'm we're just so happy to finally be in when we've talked about it for so long. Me coming on here. So I'm glad it uh, happened. And... Let's let's not make it be another 70 before i come on let's get this figured out and do it again because i had a ton of fun agreed every second wednesday since september of 2013 a new episode of rank and review has hit the interwebs and i'll keep going as long as i got it in me and And that was the 70th episode of Rank and Review, if you can believe that. Thank you so much to my friend Brock. Uh, we did this interview over Skype, and it was a long time coming, and I'm really thrilled to finally have him in the podcast, and hope, cross our fingers, he will be back again. I hope you join us for the 71st episode of Rank and Review, and I hope if you have any feedback to give, you'll do so by writing me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N. R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. You can find it on Facebook. And if you do me a favor and just help me spread the word on this podcast. I'm putting a lot of work into it and uh, uh, it'll be all worthwhile when, you know, uh, I know people are listening. So thank you as always for listening to my podcast and I'll talk to you again really soon.